Okay. So, any questions or thoughts before we go on with the new sutras? Nothing left over? Everything is fully understood? Okay. (laughs) Now that we've mastered that, (laughs) we are up to sutra number 12, 112. The vrittis are calmed (laughs) by practice and by non-attachment. It's just, it's just also deceptively simple, isn't it? Okay. Calming the vrittis, yoga is the neutralization of the vortices of the vrittis, right? Union, yoga is union. So union comes when the vrittis are calmed. That's the whole point. That's what we've been working with this whole time. It's one of the very early sutras that he defines yoga is when all of those vrittis cease to whirl. So how do we calm them? So he gives us such a simple answer. The vrittis are calmed by practice and non-attachment. Um, I know that you all have heard this. I, I, there was a, a, a good friend who almost every class would ask me the same question, and the question was always the same. Isn't there another way? <laughs> Isn't there a shortcut? Isn't it easier? You know, isn't there something we can do other than this? But the answer is always the same. A, a, a zillion years ago, when, before I found the self-realization path, and we were just all in the late 60s experimenting with everything, we, would, we were my little crowd of people. We would throw the I Ching every once in a while. I never really got very far into any of those things. But almost every one of the verses that I got, at least, had the word perseverance in it. It was very annoying. because you were hoping for something else and the only one you ever got time after time was perseverance Um, Swamiji once wrote to actually wrote it to me gave me certain advice and just said basically concentrate on what's going well and I love this and everything else will follow in relatively short order (laughs) is that what he put that word relatively like relative to eternity relative to one lifetime Like, what are you actually saying here? But the fact of the matter is, and it is no small aspect of the spiritual path to calmly and completely grasp that fact, that the vrittis are calmed by practice. And then he also adds non-attachment. But what that means is that if you practice, that means that you don't do it right for a while. And then it comes out right again later. And you learn to do it right because you practice it. I never had the far-sightedness to persevere in learning to play a musical instrument. I have done my best to overcome the shortcoming that didn't allow me to do that at the time because I just couldn't see the relationship between imperfection now and perfection later. Just being too impatient, I didn't realize that if you just keep going day by day... Karen Gamow, who became quite adept at the piano, of course, she was always eager to practice because she had a very clear relationship in her mind between the practice and the perfection. It was just something from past lives that she just knew. It was something that I just didn't know at all, and it it didn't serve me at all. Um, On the spiritual path, I've tried to be different. There's a a greater sense of desperation on the spiritual path (laughs) that there's no alternative to it. So when you ask the question, how do I succeed on the spiritual path? You persevere by practice. And then he also says by non-attachment. And non-attachment is um, also just even... 
not non-attachment to your own progress in the sense that you become passive, but, but by being non-attached to the process instead of just always being so anxious about the result. And Swami gives us the example that Master always gave. You plant the plant, you pull it up to see if it's growing, you put it back in, you pull it up to see if it's growing. Of course, it never grows because you're always spinning around worrying about the results. So the only thing that works is just to keep persevering against all those obstacles. It's an extremely important um, sutra. Because if you don't get that one, all the rest of the intellectual knowledge really doesn't serve you at all. You can spin these great theories, but if you don't get that the way that I achieve union, which is the calming of these vrittis, is by continuous practice. And the most amazing thing about the spiritual path, truly, is that it does work. And a lifetime goes by, and you find yourself, at the end of your lifetime, just entirely different than you were when you started. And you're not really sure when it happened. I have this tree right outside my window of the room where I spend so much of my time, I can never actually see the moment when the leaves come out. (laughs) They're just not there. I see them budding. I promise myself I'm going to see it this time, and then the next time I notice the leaf is there. There's just something that happens. And in our own spiritual lives, we make the same mistake a thousand times, and then all of a sudden we stop making it. We have the same suffering and the same attitude just over and over, and then suddenly we stop making it. And we don't actually know when it stopped. All we actually did was not quit. I mean, I feel that a great deal of the time. How do you succeed on the spiritual path? You just don't quit. You think it's like some bigger secret than that, but it isn't. I mean, you really don't quit. You don't quit on any level. Practice and non-attachment. Even non-attachment don't always be measuring because if you're always measuring, you're always self-concerned and self-concern itself is a terrible vritti. Oh, I'm not making any progress. I, you know, I try so hard and I'm not making progress. I, I've shared with you all and it was a completely different setting, but I actually said to Swami once, Oh, Swamiji, if the spiritual path weren't so hard, it would be easier. Except I said it with tears. Oh, if it weren't so hard, it would be easier. He absolutely did not. It was, it was like I wasn't in the room. There was no response. He didn't even so much as blink or nothing. Just absolutely non-responsive. It was like there is nothing to say to that, so I'm just going to say nothing. He just looked at me. I sort of looked at him, and I just let the sheer stupidity of what I just said just kind of hover between us for a few minutes until of its own accord it kind of fell to the floor and I, you know, repudiated it like that. But I said it really sincerely. And it was kind of, you might call it the nadir, I won't call it the apex. But it was the nadir of, isn't there another way? No, there isn't another way. This is it. And it's only a question of whether the alternative is worse. And many of us think the alternative is unthinkably worse. And you you have to deeply cultivate in your mind that the alternative is unthinkably worse. Um, Because as he writes in another sutra here, um, the force, you know, there's a a, a contrary force that tries to stop you. If your balance of light gets a little too big, then darkness does its best to see what it can do to create shadows. So you you can't be casual about your spiritual life. That's the greatest danger that people have 
especially if they live in congenial circumstances. You live in congenial circumstances and you forget what an extraordinary blessing it is to have a guru, to have a spiritual path, and to have guru bhais. You just forget. It becomes ordinary life. And you don't remember anymore uh, what it is actually like not to have those things. And that's among the ways that people quit. That's how they quit. So, sutra number 113. The endeavor to develop even-mindedness is what constitutes spiritual practice. Patanjali just reduces it all down to such simple words, doesn't he? I mean, there's nothing... Well, I should say Swami translates this and then makes a commentary on it. We're far from being some sort of super far out, hard to comprehend scripture. It just becomes the essence of real, practical, everyday life. And when we started this, and, uh, you know, whenever many weeks ago when we started this class, I was really saying what I understood from the Patanjali, this Patanjali book, is that this is just really the unvarnished essence of the spiritual path. There's no fluff in his sutras and there's no fluff in the commentary. The endeavor to develop, and that's an interesting phrase, the, meaning the effort to, to make this part of your reality, the endeavor to develop even-mindedness is what constitutes spiritual practice. It doesn't say having it. It doesn't say even achieving it. It says the effort to develop it is what spiritual practice is all about. We think of spiritual practice being chanting, meditation, energization exercises, satsang, you know, all of these different things. But if you look at all of those practices, you know, every one of them, what is it that we're trying to develop? We're trying to develop the ability to be able to to be centered, to be one-pointed in our awareness and in our concentration, and to not allow the inevitable events of life to throw us off center. I mean, this afternoon, I was sort of, I'd had a conversation on the telephone, and it was a kind of a sensitive subject, and I wasn't really sure that I'd conducted myself exactly as I should, and I lamented a little bit that I had said certain things I wished I hadn't said, and Maybe I said it in sort of the wrong way. You know, just a couple of like reflective thoughts that were on the edge of obsessive, but they were also on the edge of just appropriate realization that one needs to be more conscious. The entire battle was to stay even-minded, to not become anxious, to not become concerned about the result, to not become too um, depressed about the ever-returning nature of the vrittis. You know, there there were lots of there were lots of little um, demons nibbling around the edge. And because I was reading this and studying this sort of at the same time this was going on in the background, I just realized that that is entirely and only what I'm trying to do right now is I'm just trying to stay even-minded because there's a part of us that is always untouched. I've shared with you before, but I remembered it again today looking at this, being approximately two years old, maybe three very, very small person, extremely small person. My mother scolded me, probably appropriately, because she was not inappropriate, but she hurt my feelings. You know, she told me that I was a bad girl, and even if I had been a bad girl, I didn't like being told. 
And so, you know, the, the way little children are when they're scolded, I felt bad, and I didn't like feeling bad. And I lay on the back seat, lay on the floor of the car, actually, and I, I consciously remember thinking that I can, there's a place that I can go to where this um, upset doesn't exist anymore and where I will be okay. I mean, that was just, there's nothing there but a yogic memory. But it was so clear to me, even in childhood, that even the chaos of childhood, it was like this is only happening on the surface and there's always a part of me that's untouched. I mean, that wasn't about fantasy world at all. And it wasn't about saying that my mommy was wrong. It was nothing. It was that I have allowed these events to disturb my equilibrium. I would like to regain my equilibrium. And it, is, and it really, it's, it was no different this afternoon. It was like events have disturbed my equilibrium and the effort I have to carry on right now is to find that place within me where small things don't matter, don't become too involved, don't think you're that important, don't think that one day is going to determine your life, don't think that God doesn't love you just because you made the slight error or whatever it might be. Just use this opportunity to become more determined in your resolutions. It was all just trying to get that even-mindedness back. And speaking of childhood, my other classic yogic moment was when I dumped all the toys out of the toy shelf and my mother made me put them all back on the toy shelf. Dumping them out was great fun. I was going to reorganize it. Seeing them in the middle of the floor, I lost interest. I think of the toy shelf as being, you know, five feet tall and ten feet long. It was probably just a small bookshelf. But to my mind, it was insurmountable, and I was totally uninterested. And my sister wasn't born yet, so I couldn't have been more than three. And I just, my mother saw what I had done, and she put me back in that room and told me to put everything back on that shelf. She wasn't about to pick up the mess that I'd made. And I just thought that was such a tragic imposition on my life that I sat there in the midst of those things, just, you know, doing that sort of fake whiny cry that little kids do when they're really just being annoyed when they don't really have any reason to. And I was just doing this melodramatic, and I I remember picking up a little teddy bear and lifting it as if it weighed so much and then very dramatically kind of laying it on the shelf with this tragic sense of the impossible. And a little voice inside of me said, I don't think it cursed, but it practically did, oh, come on, just put the things away. <laughs> you know, it's like, what is the big deal here? Just put the stuff away. This is all just in your mind. You're just doing this. And, you know, that's yoga. It really is yoga. And in its own little tiny verse, I don't clearly remember what I actually did. I only clearly remember thinking that this was a fake, that there was just, it was a choice whether or not I allowed the circumstances of my life to become tragic or not. In that case, of course, nothing was at stake, but that wasn't, I was behaving. It was as big a tragedy, you know how children are. It was as big a tragedy as any tragedy that could happen because it wasn't what I wanted. So we live our lives now as adults. My own behavior didn't live up to my standard. Maybe I'm anxious about the projects that we're trying to do in the Sangha and how are we going to pay for them. You know, I'm worried about individuals. Are they going to actually get their lives together in the way that I hope they do? What if they don't? How can I help them? I mean, make your list. Everybody has a list. You know, meditation's not going as well as it should. Meditation's going great. I'm afraid it might not go well tomorrow. You know, whatever it might be. And all of those things, what do they do? They separate us from our equilibrium. 
from our even-minded, cheerful acceptance. And Swamiji lists out in the book, what if you go bankrupt? What if the people you love die? What if everyone turns against you? What if you're going to die? He just keeps throwing, he just throws all these things out. What is the big deal? You know, from the point of view of the ages, it's no different than I was as a little child there whining about having to put those toys away. Honey, they, you dumped them on the floor. They have to be put away. What could you have been thinking? That you would live forever? That the people you love would live forever? That they have nothing to do but hang around with you? You know, Swamiji often talks about people dying. You don't consider the fact that they may be better off. That they may have gone to a very happy, nice place. But we don't want that. We're just so far vrittis have persuaded us that this is good and this is bad. And even if we, you know, have an opinion, the more even-minded we can um, stay in that. But then he adds something, an important accompany, accompanying thought, however, is not to slip into negative indifference. Non-attachment, yes, but passivity is not the same as non-attachment. So this is where we walk the razor's edge of the spiritual path. And this is where the only way to learn this is by observing the example of those who have the state of consciousness that we want to have. You know, and we've been so blessed in our life to have both, both Master and Swamiji. And, you know, Swamiji, he's anything but indifferent. And Master, you read, especially when you read Durga Mata's book about Master, which I highly encourage you to do if you haven't already read it. And she just talks about how fierce and determined he was about everything he did. And just look what he accomplished in really a very few years with very little help. You know, building Lake Shrine, building the Hollywood Church, getting the Mount Washington Center, getting the Encinitas Retreat, all the back and forth that he did, the magazines, the articles that he wrote, the lessons, the books. I mean, just a huge amount of work. That, that work is not done. I mean, how do you balance that with non-attachment? It's all a dream. What difference does it make? It's, it's like so often we allow spiritual principles to come in and actually deflect us from true spirituality. And this is, this is where even-mindedness um, is to take... I was talking to a friend once who was in a very difficult decision. He was in a very difficult situation. But he didn't have anything that he could do to make the situation better. He was sort of at the mercy of others, is, is the simplest way I can describe it. And everything in him wanted to just take action, but there was no intelligent, helpful action to take. And I said, you have to take all the energy that would, you would normally use in an outward-moving way and use all of it to hold yourself perfectly still. I mean, we all know the difference between falling asleep and holding yourself perfectly still. Holding yourself perfectly still is an enormously energetic and dynamic state of mind. So when we're talking about even-mindedness, we're talking about bringing all the conflicting forces into a state of perfect equilibrium, which means that all the power is still present. It's just not being used in any particular direction. And it's, it's being used with non-attachment. There's not even any emotional going out that it has to be this way or that way. Now, when we act with even-mindedness, it's a little more 
subtle to capture all of that because there's nothing, there was nothing small about the way Swami acted. I remember one night, this was like in the 70s, um, at that period of time I worked as his secretary, there was no telephone, he had no telephone, he didn't even have any electricity, there was no such thing as the internet, there were no computers. So every afternoon at 4 o'clock we would pick up the mail, which was paper, you know, with stamps, and we'd carry it over the hill to his house. We'd walk because we didn't have a car. And we'd get to his house. We'd get to his house at 4 o'clock, deliver the mail, have tea, go over the day's business, whatever it might have been. Seva and I usually, and sometimes Kalyani, sometimes others. And we never knew when we'd leave, really, literally. Sometimes we'd leave in an hour. Sometimes we wouldn't leave till after midnight, just depending on what was going on, whether he wanted dinner. And for some reason, I remember this one night, he had a, a meditation room. At that point, just for those of you who have seen the dome there at Crystal Hermitage, where you go now and then head down the stairs to the apartment, um, that area was a meditation room. There was, no, uh, there was no downstairs, so there was no stairs. You just went through that door and where the closet and everything is. It used to be his meditation room. And for some reason, somebody had told him it was a good idea to insulate the meditation room with uh, cardboard egg cartons. So at one point he had put all these egg cartons up on the walls. I think there were curtains over them. But the, that, the, it disturbed him, all those little triangles pointing into the room. And I, don't know, I don't know what else was happening, but he really didn't like those. And he wanted to take those out. And I'm pretty sure that we cut some other kind of styrofoam or some other kind of insulation. And we just started that project. You know, uh, Swami and me and Seva, maybe one other woman... I don't even think there were any men there. Um, and we were, we were capable. Competent would be too big a word, but we were capable. But I just remember, what I really remember about that is that Swami just set his mind to the fact that we were going to do this. We were going to completely transform that room, and we were not going to stop until that room was finished. And we just didn't. We just, we just went, and I... I can still see him pulling and moving and you know doing doing it all whatever it was cutting and pasting and stapling or rehanging the curtains everything but what I was also aware of was the fact that there was there was no break in the energy there was no thought oh you know it's late oh we're tired we can finish tomorrow it was just this is going to happen and it was a small thing compared to writing the commentary in the Bhagavad Gita or something like that many things which came later but it just almost in many ways encapsulated the whole idea of uh, we're not passive. We set ourselves to do whatever we've set ourselves to do, and we simply do it. Remember how Master praised Durga Mata for the way she painted the building? And she said some of the men were sort of, you know, floating in a kind of their concept of spirituality, and she was painting as if, you know, every stroke depended on it, and all of her willpower was in every stroke. That's the, way you, that's the way you find God. Because what we also have to realize, and he says this, spiritual practice um, is, the, is even-mindedness, and that's what constitutes. The next one is spiritual practice becomes firmly grounded when it is undertaken for a long time without a break and with deep earnestness. And what we have to understand, which is, um, 
which is obvious, but we resist it, is that there's never any time when it's not about our consciousness. That, and that's what we have to really come to also understand in the spiritual life. Remaining even-minded is spiritual practice. He doesn't say kriya. He doesn't say anything. Just remaining even-minded. When, when is that not important? When is that not actually happening? And then Swami adds to it, I'm doing everything in my life to please God and not for personal ego satisfaction. So then we have to do spiritual practice becomes firmly grounded, meaning when it becomes um, no longer um, something that we move in and out of. Firmly grounded is a really good word. There's, people ask me, because sometimes I tell horrifying stories about people who are on the path for a while and then leave. And who I talk about sometimes about having only so much spiritual karma and then the fuel burns out. And invariably, you know, people come up to me afterwards with a little bit of this kind of a question. And on one hand, it doesn't hurt to be a little nervous about it. And I myself have been deeply moved by the fact that I'm still here. Nitai and I had a moment that I'll never forget where I was sitting with Nitai, who was 23 or 24 when he came to Ananda Village, which is pretty much exactly the same age I was, and we came more or less the same year, which was 1971, and we were younger. And I was sitting and talking to him not too long ago, and I mean, it's not quite the extent of the uh, disciple who came to his guru, and his guru sent him out to carry, to chop wood and carry water, and he did it for decades until he pulled out a little piece of his beard got caught in the wood and he noticed that his beard had turned white and he went and looked in the pond and saw that he'd become an old man and all he had done was chop wood and carry water. He thought he'd never been, you know, um, even initiated. But when he began to weep, his guru touched him and he went instantly into cosmic consciousness because he had simply done the one thing his master asked him to do and he did it earnestly and for a long time. And as a consequence, his consciousness was transformed. Well, I was sitting there talking to Nitai, and I noticed that his hair was white. (laughs) And I deduced, even though my hair has never turned white, but I deduced that if his hair has turned white, then we were of a comparable age since we started together. And I, I remember my eyes filled with tears, and sometimes I still cry when I remember I said, Nitai, we came young and we're still here. And it was just like, wow. Just We were young when we came, we're not young anymore, but we're still here. And because we, we'd lived our whole spiritual life together, we both knew that it hadn't always been smooth sailing for either one of us. But we were still there. And there you have it, for a long time. And I, I remember also just to thinking of Nitai. There was a, a, a period of time when it was an appropriate concern on one level, but it was also inappropriate on another. You know, we were all beginning to age, <laughs> and the question of retirement began to come in, and retirement programs. And there was some conversation about how is Ananda going to take care of us when we get old? And so there was a a meeting. I didn't attend it. I only heard about the meeting, so I really don't know what the whole tenor of the meeting was. But there was some conversation about how Ananda's going to take care of us when we get old, inasmuch as we have given so much to Ananda, and now we're getting old. 
And as I, it was told to me, Nitai stood up and said, I never had a deal with Ananda, he said. I never even had a deal with God. He said, I gave my life to God, and if at the end of my life he wants me to live under a bridge, then I will live under a bridge. He said, nobody owes me anything. Now, that's, that's real non-attachment. And that's the power of deep, continuous practice to remain even-minded in the face of everything. And, and maybe God does want you to live under a bridge, but not likely. You know, it ha- it, but it's a, complete, it's a complete system. Spiritual practice becomes firmly grounded. This is what the word I was using. Firmly grounded when it is undertaken for a long time, without a break, and with deep earnestness. No. In deep earnestness, he says here, means that even wherever you are, it's always the same. I have this, I mean, I, I rarely go to the movies because almost all movies are abhorrent to me in some way or another. You know, there's gratuitous violence or just some, some gross misrepresentation of truth or just some terrible values. And I, some, as I, I often put it, I said, I just can't stop being a priest long enough to enjoy this. I'm just thinking about the incredible damage that is being done to people and the hours of counseling that are going to be required in order to correct you know, this effect um, that I just can't just say, oh, it's just a story. It's, and that's not an affectation on my part. It's that, I mean, it's Swami's definition of deep earnestness. There's no time when this isn't happening. Of course, you know, I'm going into seclusion tomorrow, and the time of seclusion is different than the time of ordinary life. There's no question about that. And I'm certainly not above time wasters at all. I'm not a person who never, uh, you know, seeks a little bit of downtime one way or another. Um, But nonetheless, there's a deep earnestness that develops, and it's a very fine quality to develop. And this is the answer to how you can start young and still be here when you're old or start old and die here wherever you're starting. It doesn't make any difference. Is because you're not looking to find real breaks from this. When he says without a break, he he, he means partly also without taking a long worldly excursion. But sometimes even great saints take long worldly excursions. They just get drawn into some karma and then they come back. Taramata who was Master's you know, great disciple, Swami's great nemesis and Master's great disciple. But she was still Master's great disciple. She edited autobiography. She did so much for him. She got married. Well, she, she left to get married. It's unclear a little bit whether she actually got married. She did have a child, however. She left Mount Washington, and I guess Master didn't really want her to do it. She went, she went I think, across the country. She had a daughter. Whatever the relationship was about, it did not turn out to be anything because not so long after, she came back with the child in tow. And one of the nuns said to her, one of the nuns who had witnessed the whole cycle, how dare you come back after having, you know, having disobeyed the master so completely? And Tara is reputed to have said, do you want me to just worship my mistakes? No. First of all, Tara was not going to be in, even slightly influenced by somebody else's opinion, which was to her credit. But also, it's like, all right, so I was, didn't act as wisely as I should have acted. 
that doesn't mean I'm going to throw away the whole incarnation. It's not a small learning. You know, deep earnestness, even if in the middle of a terrible error or a completely foolish cycle of wasted time, we just, as soon as we know it, we just come back. So again, don't, don't ever underestimate or misunderstand what success on the spiritual path is. Um, I, I, I never heard Swami say this exactly, but I've heard it quoted many times as if Master said it, so I'm going to believe it's true. Master said it doesn't matter, you know, whether you... Um, you don't have to get through standing up triumphantly. He said you don't even just have to crawl forward, right? You can slither along like a lizard <laughs> as long as you just keep going forward. Because you see the alternative, and you see it in people, is that they give up altogether. And once you give up altogether, you're not lost. You're just wasting a little more time. There's a few people who live at Ananda Village now who took a long hiatus. They went off for 10, 20, maybe even 25 years. They took a very long hiatus. And a few of them, I don't think they had an easy time of it while they were away. But at some point, after all that karmic chaos... It just crossed their mind that this is really what they should do, and they just walked right back in. And in many ways, you admire that almost even more because they really, they really had, they really got swayed, but then they found their, their way back into it. And so, whether it's a day or a week or a year, whatever it is, there was a people come back here. Now we've been here long enough. You know, we've been here twenty-five and more years. So people who were with us at the beginning who wandered off. Many of them wander back in again. I remember one man came and he said, he just talked about all the troubles that he'd had, you know, with, I think he'd had alcoholism and God knows what else. He looked like he'd had a lot of problems. He said, I thought back to when was the last time I was really happy. And he said, when it was autobiography of a yogi and I was part of Ananda. And then he just decided, well, I'm, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to go right back into that. That's deep earnestness, actually, you see. Even if there's a break, he says, without a break, but even if there is a break, that we're, we're, we're deeply sincere. Earnestness is about sincerity. Don't ever... Um, don't ever make light of your own seriousness on the spiritual path. Don't, don't even as a joke, don't ever joke. Remember how Master Swami tells that story where Master was having lunch with uh, just some guests after the, the service, at, and one of the guests said to Master, oh, Dr. Lewis was your first disciple in America, wasn't he? And as Swami describes it, Master became unexpectedly reserved and then very seriously said, well, that's what they say. And then how Swami explained that was discipleship was too sacred a subject to be casually discussed over lunch, and he didn't add it, but with people who really didn't understand. He wouldn't even go there. And so that's how we need to be. We need to be very protective about our spiritual life, very earnest about it. If we're with people who don't understand, don't say anything. And don't, don't make light of your own lack of commitment, if you perceive it to be such, or lack of seriousness. It's just, we have to deeply, we have to do that firmly grounded. I had a, a fantasy, I mean just a, a mind, imaginary thought when I flew once to India by myself and had a, had a, a few hours off layover 
I was flying Asiana, Asiana Airlines and it goes through South Korea. So I was in Seoul. So that's Seoul, South Korea. Completely alone. May have been the first time I went to India completely by myself. And there I am in this airport. You know, thousands of miles from anywhere, anyone I know. I'm only in an airport and all airports in the world now are the same. But there I am. And I just had this thought, what if? You know, what if war breaks out in this moment? What if there's some cataclysmic event? What if I have to spend the rest of my life right here? Not in the airport, but in this country. And I just kind of imagined how I would rebuild. But the picture of rebuilding was, well, first I have to learn the language, but then as soon as I learn the language, I have to recreate my life. I have to recreate the life that matters to me. And it could be lived anywhere. I've never... I've never had a certain fantasy that some people have that I might get thrown out of Ananda. <laughs> but every once in a while, I would think what would happen if for some reason I wasn't with Ananda. And I finally realized I would have to recreate it. That's all. I just have to start somewhere and as much as possible recreate what we have because it's firmly grounded. I can't, I can't conceive of another life. And, and that's what we cultivate. How has it become firmly grounded for a long time without a break? with deep earnestness. Any questions or thoughts about any of that? Okay. From constant self-remembrance, there comes complete non-attachment to things seen or heard. And then he says, you know, it's not merely the things that we experience, but we become attached to vicarious events. So Amiji talked about the time of newspapers and radios and so on, and finally his realization that almost everything that was offered to him as news was really just a sophisticated form of gossip, that it was really just gossip about things that he was not personally involved in, that he had no personal uh, influence over, and that, wasn't really, that didn't really have anything to do with him. Um, Swamiji has felt an, had felt an obligation as the leader of a community and responsible for so many people and their life and their well-being, that he had to have some idea of what was going on in the world. I myself, I used to read the newspaper. We used to get the paper newspaper. We were very antediluvian in that way. Is that the right word? Before the flood, we used to, we still used to get the paper newspaper. And I used to read it. And then I realized that every day that I read it, it made me just more, very, very nervous because all the news was bad and all of it was beyond me to influence. And it finally just occurred to me one day I don't have to do this. I don't have to know any of this because none of this actually has anything to do with me because I can't influence it. I don't believe I can influence. I think what's going on in our country and our world is in the hands of God. I know not everyone agrees with that, but I think it's in the hands of God and in the hands of the knaves who seem to have power right now. And this is simply what's going on. This is one of those realities if even-mindedness is our practice, and if, our, if that's our primary practice, we have to really ask ourselves what contributes to it and what does not. Because Master, Master says, and these are all very important points, you know, Master draws these exact parallels between cataclysmic events, between um, violence among people, between tra- tragedies, between bad weather, and the magnetism created by wrong human thinking. So we may think that we're contributing by concentrating on all those events, but if they disturb our even-mindedness, we're actually not contributing 
to the actual solutions. I mean, Swamiji's you know, solution for world events is, is small cooperative communities where people just simply have an atmosphere that they can control and create a solution. That's what the whole Finding Happiness movie is. That's the whole theme of the movie. You can't go over the bridge, you go under it. That's how Swami puts it. You know, we can't change the whole society, so we'll create positive vortices of energy. Now, that's a particular inclination of mine. I don't want to impose that on others who have a greater interest in world events, but it's very interesting that he says here, you know, we just see how avidly men especially study the Wall Street Journal for news of the actions on the day's stocks, how eagerly women sniff for news of the daily local scandal sheet. When one lives in the consciousness of God, all outer attachments fade away. And then he says, remember, the mind ever grows by what it feeds upon. And it's, you know, this is the, this is the process that we all have to go through because all of these vrittis keep pulling us in all these different directions. And you also have to, you know, have the rule of the gardener, which is you have to bend the branch as far as it'll go, but if you bend it too far, it snaps. If we try to be too stern in our spiritual life, we can lose it all. So we have to know, somebody asked Swamiji once, how much discipline is enough discipline? And his response to it um, was that which you can do with a light heart and joyfully. That's enough discipline. And if you're pushing yourself to the point where you're beginning to resent the spiritual path, now do understand, it's a very personal thing because that doesn't mean that your discipline is always pleasurable. Joyful, joy and pleasure are two different things. It might not always be pleasurable, but it can still be very joyful. I think of the example of athletes. And just many of their workouts are not at all pleasurable. But there's a tremendous joy in what they accomplish through what they do. And so on the spiritual path, we have to always be in touch with that joy. We can't let the path begin to feel oppressive to us. Because as soon as the path begins to feel oppressive to us, pretty soon we will break away and leave it. Because we, we won't do that, which doesn't, please us on some level. It's called, in the Catholic Church, it's called overscrupulosity. And I remember falling into it, and I remember how earnestly Swamiji pleaded with me to just relax. I mean, it was like the more unhappy and tense I could make myself, the more I thought I was pleasing God. And Swami just pleaded with me. He said, God does not want you to be unhappy. He said, that's your idea. And that was just sort of like making the path more and more oppressive. I can't do this. I can't do that. I have to worry about this. I have to censor about that. This is not allowed. That's not allowed. In the Catholics, it's overscrupulosity until you're just so self-obsessed and your concept of the path is so impossible that you can't stay on it. So it's a very fine line that you have to walk. and You just have to ask yourself, is this contributing? And if it's not contributing... How can I guide myself in a new direction? In the early years of the path, people used to be very extreme. You know, people do successfully. Benai, I think, actually went through a whole winter without shoes. You know, and various people would try to live without heat or essentially without food. You know, just, I was such a wimp. I could never even consider those things. But, you know, people would try extreme measures 
but Swamiji never, ever, ever encouraged it. Because, you know, make haste slowly is the way that we're, we're really going to work. So even though we say this, the mind grows in the directions that it's, it's fed, um, move in a way that is in harmony with your inclinations, but move as fast as you can with deep earnestness in that direction. Any thoughts or questions? Yes, Stephen. You know, I, was, I wonder sometimes, because Swami has said, more recently, don't even try to live the way I do. Oh, yeah. And I wondered, to what extent is it necessary to actually become liberated? To Not, live like him? Yeah, I mean, I don't have personal inclinations yet to live that way. I understand the importance of discipline. So, was that particular to him? Oh, no. What, the reason he said don't even try to live the way I do is because... You're not there yet. Right, right. It was like, this is basically, my life is too advanced for most of you. That was what he was really saying indirectly. So that I, I kind uh-huh. of understood. And is it simply a step on the path to liberation to live that way? The way Swami is? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> this is why, and this has just been my own way of appraising it, I think in terms <clears throat> of more incarnations. Yeah. <clears throat> Even though... We have been encouraged to think about becoming liberated in one lifetime. I look at Swamiji and I think that's what it looks like when you're finished. And then I look in the mirror and this is what it looks like when you're deeply earnest about what you're doing. And I don't feel in any way that I'm, that I don't measure up. I feel I measure up just fine, but no, I don't measure up to that standard. But, but, I'm not afraid of meeting that standard. I'm just right. not there yet. Right. Is, that, so, is that fair? And, and, and when you're there, it doesn't feel like deprivation. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I was talking to, when we were buying this car, the man wanted, you know, this one has leather seats and it costs an extra, you know, $2,000 for the leather seats. I said, I've been a vegetarian since I was 18. I said, I wear leather shoes, but I don't think I'll pay $2,000 for leather seats. <laughs> and... He said, I was a vegetarian for two years and I felt so good and I just, you know, I was much healthier and I was like this. I said, why did you stop? You know, so here he was. He was a vegetarian for two years. He felt, oh, it's just inconvenient. Nobody else was doing it and this and that. So I've been a vegetarian since I was 18. It's just like it would be a tapasya to eat meat. And some people look at you and think, oh, wow. How have you managed to do that all this time? I don't know just like it would be a nightmare to give me. I'm embarrassed in restaurants. People get a big steak, and I think, oh, they're doing that in front of their children. It's just, you know. <laughs> they drink wine. It's just so casual. <gasps> it's just horrifying to me. And then I have to exhale and realize where I am and that this is normal behavior for these people, and, and they think that I'm the weird one. So you're right. You just, you're at your own vibration, and it feels natural, and you just keep going. And our ability to do things joyfully exactly. expands. That's exactly it. Yeah. You know, I don't... But, I mean, I'm not... Well, I, I'm, no, I'm nowhere compared to him. Sure. But thank God he was in our lives. So oh, we yeah. know where we're going. I mean, it's way out there, but, you know, there's a, there are footprints. We can follow it. Yeah. That's what I was, guess I was saying in Assisi at some point. The thought of filling Swami's shoes is just, like, unthinkable. 
Following his footprints, though, is not so bad. <laughs> that we can do. <laughs> okay? Yeah, Let's take a break. Okay, short break. And we'll come back and do number 16. Um, the question was asked, because um, I was giving those childhood memories, of the kind of what I call breakthrough memories of being a yogi before. And uh, why, is, why is it that we don't hold the consciousness that strongly? And the fact of the matter is that many of us do. I mean, how, do, how is it that we get drawn back to the spiritual path? Or we are inexplicably conscious and we don't have a context for it for many, uh, many years. And I was mentioning that in my early 20s when I was living at Ananda Village, I was living out in the country. I'd never even been camping before I moved there. And uh, living out in the country with no, no amenities of any kind, I joined the monastery. Um, just nothing in my previous life looked like it was going in that direction. My younger sister, actually, my sister, who's younger than I, remarked once, I mean, just about my childhood, if you could become a vegetarian, anyone could become a vegetarian. I have no you know, particular memory of being an omnivore, but I guess I, guess I was. I mean, I guess her perception of me was that meat was one of my favorite foods, and then I became a vegetarian. I, I don't see it that way, but it was still an interesting comment. So it's not as if I wasn't, like some children become vegetarians as children. They just have an aversion to meat, even if they're born with it. Next time I will. Uh, <laughs> or be born into a family that will never feed it to me. But, uh, but when I actually looked at my life, outside of the form. See, it was the form of my life that surprised me. How would I know about an American yogi, a cooperative community, an Indian guru, Kriya Yoga? Nothing in my life told me anything about that. I grew up in the most ordinary circumstances from that point of view. My parents were intellectual, but they weren't expansive in terms of completely other realities or other cultures or anything like that. It just wasn't part of our world. But I realized certain things from, uh, from my earliest memories, and this, is, this to me is the, is the unifying key, I always wanted to be happy. And that's kind of glib. Everybody wants to be happy. But I w- noticed this weird thing about my desire, is that I really wanted to be happy. And I wanted to be happy to the extent that I was willing to change myself in order to remove those things that were keeping me from being happy. And in that I discovered I was very strange. And I partly put it down to the fact that I was just, I had no tolerance for suffering. I I kind of put it in reverse. I had no tolerance for suffering. Whereas other people just seemed to be able to suffer kind of like indefinitely. They could have desires that would never be fulfilled. They could have moods that would never lift. They could have disappointments that they would just cling to. Um, you know, they would have complaints that they would never surrender. And they, they just seemed able to do that. And I just wasn't able to do it. If it wasn't going to work out, I was going to just move on. That was the way it was going to be. And I, it wasn't like I would run away. That I would actually find a way to, to make it okay, just like I did as a little kid. And I realized that was odd. And, and then what happened was I just learned a more and more subtle way to fulfill that. 
And whereas my intention had never shifted, never, it never shifted. It's just the form of it kept shifting as, as more and more subtle forms of my ambition were revealed to me. And I often talk to people, don't think about the form. Think about what your inner intention was. And, and the other side of that that I realized that I had from childhood was that I always felt confined and I didn't have the vocabulary until well into the spiritual path to realize that I was confined by the ego. But I just felt confined, and no picture of my life actually looked like freedom to me. It just looked like another kind of confinement. You know, money, success, praise, accomplishment. I mean, most of my lack of perseverance was just my lack of discipline, but a certain amount of it was I couldn't see the point. I mean, mere, even mere knowledge, mere accomplishment, it just wasn't going to take me anywhere. And, and when I finally saw Swami Kriyananda for the first time and saw that he was not confined, that was how it actually even expressed in my mind that there was no edge to his consciousness. I didn't get the word confinement until a little bit later, but what attracted me about him was I could tell that that oppressed feeling that was my everyday reality was not his reality. He'd gotten out of it somehow. I didn't even know what it was, even though I had a certain amount of knowledge. But so that was a, just a powerful driving force. And even though I had to go through a, you know, an ordinary American upbringing, but still, by the time in my own life, by the time I was 20, I was on the path. By the time I was 22, I was with Swami. I mean, that's not much. That's basically just, you know, learning to read and how to walk in and out of a room and drive a car. I mean, that's about all you're learning. I started earlier than a lot of people, and for that I'm eternally grateful. And we want to work to have it happen even better the next time. But you can see it's an important thing just for your own self-respect to realize that you had where you are, because it also helps you, you see, understanding that helps you sort through the details. You don't get mixed up by a detail of what you, little thing you like, little thing you don't like, or get down on yourself for small, small transgressions because you got confused about the form. You're still trying to do the same thing, but you got confused about the form. You had karma somewhere you have to figure out. Does that make sense? It's a very, very important point. Okay. Anything else? Okay. Ice number 116. When one ceases to thirst for outward manifestation, having realized the purusha, one attains supreme non-attachment. Okay. So now he goes into a little conversation about the gunas. And the gunas are really, really helpful also because they help us just kind of to understand what goes on in this world. Um, So he talks about the three gunas, the sattvic energy, which is calm and uplifting, the tamasic energy, which takes us down into um, dullness, stupidity, indifference, and an attempt to escape from reality. During the break, we were also talking about um, one of the ways in which we don't practice the spiritual path all the time is when we try to deal with situations that we don't enjoy by becoming duller in our consciousness. Um, Swamiji did that uh, slideshow that he 
often talked about, we have to bring it out again, different worlds where he talked about, he just took pictures of people's different consciousness. He has a picture of the New York subway. Just people just standing there like they're, like, you know, they're half dead. And it, you think it doesn't matter, but it is choosing lower awareness as an attempt to get away from something that's unpleasant. Instead of lifting our consciousness to a higher state of awareness, we try to go into a lower state of awareness. I had a medical procedure done, and it was not pleasant. I just had a needle put in my arm, which I don't like to do. And, um, and then it was, it, it, it was painful. And I, I, I laughed in my mind. I was thinking, give me something that will dull the pain. It was just like my mind just reached out. I mean, it, was not a, it was not a big experience even. It was a very small experience. But my mind just wanted a painkiller, just like that. I mean, I'm not even a drug taker as a rule, but it, wow. I just saw it. it. Like it came out of, like, what vritti was that? Where did that come from? And so often in our experience, we try to just dull our awareness. And that's the tamasic energy. The tamasic energy is always there, and it's always trying to pull us down. The sattvic energy is trying to rise, and the tamasic is trying to pull us down. And then the third is the rajasic energy. The way Swami explains it is so interesting, because we tend to think of it as, well, there's tamasic energy, then there's rajasic energy, then there's sattvic energy. But he says the rajasic energy goes either way. The rajasic energy is the active energy. And sometimes the active energy just takes us more and more into to tamasic energy. And then it's rajotamo, is how he calls it. That we just, you know, we want to go off. We're going to go buy more beer. We're going to go to some club where the music is really loud. We're just going to, we're tired of being in this place. We're just going to go home and go sit down in front of the television. And we have this restless, fidgety energy, but we use it to take ourselves down. Or we have that restless energy, but the, it's a restless energy for for more and more of the sattvic energy. And that's where we're always standing. It's like the battleground is how do we use that active moving energy? And it's not just physically moving us from place to place, it's also influencing our consciousness. You know, do we use the rajasic energy to lift our awareness? How how do we how do we distract ourselves? How do we entertain ourselves when we're not entirely meditating or serving or whatever we're doing? How are we using that energy to serve or to serve who or to serve what or to serve self? I mean, I remember many years ago in the very beginning of the spiritual path, there was a woman in the community and Swami had her busy all the time, seven days a week, just practically all her waking hours. And some other person of a different temperament kept trying to urge this woman to take some time off. And in fact, actually in front of Swami said, I think she should take some time off. And Swami looked right at the one speaking and said, I know what's best for her. Just like that. Because the woman's energy, when she wasn't actively being rajasattvic, her energy completely went down into tamasic energy, into moods, into sort of self-doubt, and so on like that. The only possibility was to keep the rajasattvic energy moving all the time. And a lot of people come to me and they'll, you know, what do I do? I'm can't meditate all that well, serve, 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 all the time. Be busy all the time. Speaking to someone recently, single person, lots of energy, busy all the time. That's right, you should be busy all the time. Swami said to us when we were nuns, young women who were all working in the monastery, 
He said, just because you're not having children, that doesn't mean that you get away with anything. He said, you should be working as hard as mothers with new babies are working. You know, a mother with a new baby never has a moment to herself because it's, as my friend said, when his, after his children were born, he said, I used to think I was a pretty selfless guy, he said, until I had kids. And then I discovered that being selfless means having no self. Not merely being generous with yourself, it means that you cease to exist or be any priority whatsoever. And he wasn't complaining, he was just observing. Isn't this fascinating? That, look, because it was good for him, look what it did for me. It just made, made him realize on a level that he'd never imagined how much he could give. And when, when we were nuns together, Swami said, you should all be like mothers with new babies. I mean, God's work should be your child, and you should never, you should be responding to it at all times. And it's, it's a very, you know, we're restless anyway. How are we using our restless energy? Find a way to serve, find a way to serve. And when we can be more inward with that energy, by all means, follow that. But pay attention. Pay attention. All, all of this is, I've qualified it enough with what I've said earlier, but pay attention. And then he talks about here, about how, how impersonal divine love is. He says, it is impersonal, but it is the only true love in existence. And this is where he says, human love usually suffers over the death of a loved one, for example when in fact that loved one may well have gone on to a much happier life. And certainly it is possible to be far, far happier in the astral world than most people are here. It's very interesting. Swami, there's so many things about the spiritual path that go so contrary to the way people think. You know, to, to, to think that you're not supposed to grieve when somebody you love dies. But several times in just these few pages, Swamiji has just, reiterated that point over and over again. You know, that even if your death is, if your love is truly impersonal, that means that there's no personal element in it for you. You're not trying to get anything for your person in it. You just simply and only want what's best. And that's how God loves us. It's so hard to even get our minds around that. And I know some of us have experienced that or are experiencing that kind of divine acceptance from Swamiji's spirit or felt it when we would be in the room with him. And, you know, it's just, it's an extraordinary thing to realize that someone loves you for, for no reason at all that has anything to do with them. They just want your best interest. And that's really, that's the love that God has for us. But as Swami wrote to us in his Easter letter, which we discussed at great length here, you know, I'm, I'm, I love you, but I'm not, I don't love anything except your spirit, your inner self. Your, your little petty interests just don't interest me at all. And we think they're just so important, and for so many years he humored us so, and he took so seriously all our little concerns, only toward the end did he really just, don't ask me about those things anymore, all I'm interested in is your spirit. They loom so large to us. But that's why we does talk about it here, that, you know, we are pulled in two directions. That he says it here that usually Satan doesn't trouble the people he has safely in his net. Ah. But whenever anyone tries sincerely to escape that net, Satan does his best to pull him back. 
Thus, saints are submitted to endless barrages as Satan tests the sincerity of their inward calling. Satan's outward pull away from God is unrelenting. But then, he adds, but God's pull is also there. And we might put it this way. Satan pulls us to the left, God pulls us to the right, but neither pulls us in either direction until we ourselves take the first step. The more we move toward God, the more strongly he pulls us with his love. And the more we move toward exclusive ego satisfaction, the more Satan draws us toward self-involvement and mental darkness. Satan has no love for us, but God's love for us is infinite. Isn't that beautiful? What a beautiful way to put that. Now, let me just pull this thought out. Just give me a second here. That's why satsang is so important. Whether or not your consciousness goes inward and upward to God or outward to the world, Master said, depends above all on the company you keep. That's a very, very interesting statement. And what happens, and I've seen it happen many times, when you get out of the habit of having satsang, when you stop coming to Sunday service or to kirtan or to a morning meditation or whatever your pattern is, when you start withdrawing from that pattern, not only are you not renewed, but you gradually forget why you were going in the first place. Because the vibration of satsang is very subtle. And when you get alone with your own thinking, and you say, I'd just rather stay home tonight, but no, you ask yourself, what am I actually doing with my time? And then we think, oh, well, I need this time for this reason. And I'm not, again, I'm not trying to be unreasonable. But if you consistently, I was very lucky because at the early years of Ananda, you know, we were such a small community, among other things, and we were all on this one piece of land, and most of us, almost none of us had cars. There was no place to go. I mean, here it's sneaky, because you never really quite know where people are. But there, everybody always knew where you were. And you were either the, either where you were supposed to be or you weren't. And we didn't really have a lot of rules about it because you were either where you were supposed to be or you weren't. And so you just always had to be where you were supposed to be. And where you were supposed to be was in the flow of the satsang and the service. And every Sunday we'd go to Sunday service. It just never crossed our minds that we wouldn't go. I mean, among other things... It wasn't, we didn't go for ourselves. It's like if we didn't go, it wasn't there. It's, it's like we had to go because it wouldn't happen if we weren't there. We'd be missed, we'd be noticed, and we wouldn't be generating the energy. So it was just became a, just an utterly instinctive part. I mean, I'm not averse, and David and I sometimes drive down the street and, on Sunday mornings and see people going into Starbucks with the newspaper, and the thought crosses our mind that people do that sort of thing. But uh, it's, not, it's not a sincere thought. I'm just really glad we have a place that we want to come to. But just keeping yourself in that vibration, because as soon as you start withdrawing from that, you know, one doesn't want to go around being paranoid all the time, but a healthy, really healthy respect for delusion is really smart on the spiritual path. Because once you start moving in that direction, you find a Thousands of reasons why it's a good idea to go there. And then, 25 years later, 
you know, you're off somewhere and you remember that there used to be this time when you did this other thing and whatever happened to that, you don't want to, you don't want to go there. So it just re- always know that you have to be actively going toward the light. There's no standing still. There's no becoming passive in it. And the challenge of the spiritual path is to stay fresh to the end. The honeymoon is easy, but the marriage is more of a challenge. And the marriage is really where the power comes. Well, any thoughts or comments, or are we done? Okay. So, next week we'll start with 117, and that's up to Sabakalpa Samadhi. We're getting a little beyond my experience here, but Swami gives us three pages, so we'll work with what he has to say. Then we come to Nirbakalpa Samadhi. So... We'll work with those famous questions. But not next week. We have a week off. Okay. So, God bless you all.